This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 48. I also want them to be a business person. And I have had HR people that, man, they knew the process in and out. They were great at the compensation management process. They always kept me on time. You know, they made sure that we had our reviews. Everybody had their reviews done and all that kind of stuff. And that's nice. That kind of kept me out of HR jail. But what I really want is a business person that understands the strategy, that understands what the salesperson is doing and what the marketing person is doing and has opinions on it. Let's have a real conversation about what works, what doesn't work, what we could do, what we couldn't do, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. And then we'll decide together. That's what I want that relationship to look like. What do business leaders expect from their HR business partners? What four competencies do all successful leaders have in common? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to take a moment and say thank you for being a loyal listener to the Future of HR podcast. Why am I saying thank you this week? Well, this past week, the podcast hit a major milestone as we surpassed 50,000 downloads. I want to thank all the amazing guests who joined us over the past 48 episodes. Their willingness to share their career journey, insights, and experiences with all of us has truly been incredible. And while 50,000 downloads is awesome, we are just getting started. But I need your help to continue to grow the podcast and inspire the next generation of HR leaders. You can help by sharing the podcast with at least one other person by posting on LinkedIn or writing a review on Apple Podcasts. And lastly, I would love to hear from you. What other topics or guests would you like to see on a future episode? What ideas do you have to make the future of HR podcast even better? I'm all ears. And thank you. Thank you again for all of your support. With that, my guest this week is Jay Parker. Jay is a successful former technology executive whose passion for developing leaders led him to start a company called MentorForce. MentorForce's mission is to assist companies in developing their next generation leaders. They offer a turnkey mentoring program for corporate clients that leverages a very unique executive network of past executives to deliver experience insights via video master classes, interactive group seminars, and private mentoring sessions. Prior to founding MentorForce, Jay was the president of Dell's $50 billion personal computing business, where he had responsibility for all commercial and consumer markets. Today, we're going to tap into Jay's deep business experience and discuss what he learned from his time as a senior executive at Dell and Lenovo, the four competencies that all successful leaders have in common, why he started MentorForce and his vision to rethink leadership development, and what he believes business leaders expect and want from their HR business partners, and much more. Jay, welcome to the Future of HR. We're excited to have you on the podcast. You're actually the first business executive who's not an HR executive, even though you're now an entrepreneur in the HR space, 
on the podcast. So it's kind of an honor All right, for us. I'm honored. Thank you for doing that. The first question for you, Jay, is uh, you've worked your entire career in technology. Tell us a little more how you got into the technology industry and when did you realize that was the right fit for you? Yeah. Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a slight correction, but you would never know this. I actually started my career in banking. And the reason I tell you that is that's how I ended up in technology. I went into banking out of college and don't think about glamorous Wall Street investment banking. I was in a retail branch, cashing checks and balancing checkbooks and the whole thing in a management training program. And I had a couple of epiphanies during that two-year period. One was... uh one of the breaking points was I had a lady come into the office one day and I was in my suit really wanting to provide good customer service. And she walks in with a huge cardboard box and I rush out of my little office and I say, Hey, you know, may I help you with that? What do you have in there? Why don't you come back to my office? And she came back there and she had about five years worth or more of unopened checking statements, which people don't even look at anymore, probably. And she said, can you help me balance my checking account? So that didn't seem like a good use of my college degree. The other event that I had was this little training program I was in. They put us together with a little luncheon one time with one of the executives of the bank. He was in charge of the region. And we got to asking him questions about his career and all this kind of stuff and what we could expect during our career. And he said, well, you know, I've been at the bank for 20 years, uh, and, you know, I worked my way up and et cetera, et cetera. And now I am the head of this region, which to give you an idea is, you know, maybe a, a two, a two mid-sized city type region. And I found out that he earned less than $40,000 a year. And I thought, wow, I'm not sure if I want to work 20 years to earn $40,000. And so I got to find something different. So that's the long story. I found technology and I like the technology space because I saw growth. I saw personal opportunity and business opportunity. I like the pace of it. Always change, always something new by definition. And I saw that that was the future, quite literally, in terms of what people were going to be buying, excited about. And I thought that would be a lot more exciting as a career than banking. And I'd probably be able to earn a little bit more money. That's the story. That's a great story. I think the other thing that strikes me when you talk about that is that some of these first career opportunities, first jobs we have, are an opportunity to find out what we don't want to do. And we should embrace that and not feel stuck and say, okay, well, I don't love this, but how do I get something different, better, or new like, like you did? Yeah, that's right. Terrific. Well, you also had this impressive career. We knew each other from working at Lenovo, but you have spent a lot of time in technology, had senior leadership roles at Lenovo and Dell. In fact, your last role, you were responsible for and you were president of the Personal Computer Group, which had about sales of just shy of $50 billion or more. Not a, not a small number, a pretty big number, Jay. It's a big responsibility. What have those experiences taught you about how successful organizations operate working inside Dell and Lenovo and at such high scale? Yeah, you know, it's funny. You, you say $50 billion. When you're in the job, you know, there's not, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of difference between $50,000 and $50 billion. It's just, it, it, there's a lot more zeros, but the foundation is the same and you start to become a little bit numb to how big those numbers are. What I learned is that operating a business is not rocket science. As I came up, I always thought, man, those, those people are so smart. They know so much more. They're, they're wise. They, 
they have this experience, et cetera. And, and there is some truth to that, but it's also true that a lot of times they're not any smarter than you are. While you need experience to run a large business like that, anybody can do it with the right attitude and the right work ethic and the right decision-making. And I guess there's a few things that, that I feel like I've learned in that kind of in that vein about what it does take to be successful. One is if you're going to run an operation or a business like that, you have to understand what your company's advantage is or your product's advantage or, or whatever you're selling. And then you got to exploit the heck out of it. Now that sounds obvious, but I've certainly been in well-respected organizations whose real advantage was that they had a cost advantage over the competition but they wanted to be seen as a as an innovator and as a technology, you know, a real high end technology. That wasn't really what they did. And it, when you end up getting mixed up between what you do well between versus what you want to be, that can cause some issues in the business. So that's one. But the second, these are in no particular order. You got to hire good people, but you not only have to hire them, you got to let them do their thing. And that doesn't matter if you're manage a seven-person team or a 7,000-person team, you have to trust them to use creativity and all of their skills to make the business better than you could with your own ideas. Number three, you have to have specific goals and you have to have what I'll call a business management system that helps track yourself to that goal. I've seen so many people that are trying to operate a business, they aren't specific to their team about what they want to achieve. So everybody's a little confused about what they're going for, or they have a very specific goal. Maybe it's a financial goal or whatnot. And nobody knows if they're achieving that goal or not. So you have to have both. And people have to know what you're going for. They have to see every week, are you getting there? Are you falling behind? What are you doing to improve the situation? It has to be clear and repeatable. And then I guess the last thing is uh, communication with the team. You have to share the strategy. You got to share the decisions that you make and why you make them. You have to be honest and transparent about what you're doing and why you're doing it. I think gone are the days where the employee base is kind of in, in the dark about how the business is being run. They want to know what's going on. They need to know what's going on because that's going to make everybody a little bit better and the chances of you achieving your ambitions a lot higher. So I, I could keep going, but that's kind of the way that I saw it. I think about all four of those elements you just brought through are so important to work together, right? You have to be able to have a business system, an operating system that you know, and you're keeping score and then communicating that so people are motivated, but obviously having people own things and have the autonomy to help drive towards that goal and I think what I've seen when organizations are underperforming, one or more of those are missing. And your perspective, are there, when you've seen organizations that are turnaround or having to kind of fix a business unit, is there one that you seem to see more often that companies or leaders aren't doing as much or they're struggling on? I'll say the communication piece. Once you have a team, again, no matter how big, that is kind of wondering what's going on, why are we doing that? Why are we not doing that? Are we are we doing well? Are we not doing well? Hey, I heard this, but I'm not sure if it's true. You know, when you start getting those types of dynamics in a team, it gets unhealthy 
And that comes from a lack of communication or transparency or both. People, people can handle the truth. You know, I think sometimes as an executive, I've seen people, they feel like they need to really position the message. They, they might want to hold some stuff back. They don't think the audience is mature enough to hear the real God's honest truth. People can handle the truth. I've had so many people come to me after the fact, whether it be in a town hall or a small meeting or whatnot, even one-on-one meeting, and just say, hey, that was really tough to hear, but I appreciate it. Like, now I know. And I think that's important. And to answer your question, I think sometimes that gets lost for some executive leaders. And working with you, it's been a while, but that was one of the strengths I think you did have, just being really transparent. I think everyone always thought you were a straight shooter which I think people really appreciate being that authentic leadership and to your point, treating them like adults. Like we should do more of that. And I think HR, most progressive HR people are trying to make sure that happen in their organizations just for those reasons you mentioned. But you obviously were wildly successful as a technology executive. You did some great things. And then you decide to take a pivot and start a company called Mentor Force. And I'm a company I'm really excited about, and I know we've had some conversations around that. That's one reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast is because I think it's a really interesting solution to development that maybe hasn't been out there before. But talk to us more about MentorForce and why you decided to start yeah. the company. So actually, my pivot, JP, was to retire. <laughs> that was the plan. And it turns out I don't like playing golf you know, more than once every couple of weeks. I'm not very good at surfing. And, you know, my, my kids are at an age that they don't want to hang out with me all the time. So that kind of led me down the path of what am I going to do next? But I didn't have any ideas. I certainly wasn't going back to the corporate world. That wasn't my plan. And so what was happening is I started getting the phone calls, a lot of phone calls from people I used to work with. And I'm sure that for the people listening that have been in this situation where they left a role or, or something like that, people call and they say, hey, do you have 30 minutes? I'd love to talk to you about XYZ. I'm thinking about leaving. I'm having a problem with Joe. I'm having an issue with this project. I'd love to pick your brain. And I was doing it because I had the time and I liked doing it. And that was one of the things I loved to do during my corporate career, but you rarely have time for. You have the one-on-one here and there when somebody asks for it, but you don't have time to do that all day. And so now I did. And I started doing that. And that was the genesis of the idea, which is this. First of all, there's a lot of people like me that have left the corporate world, but they're of an age and or of a mindset that they're not done. They have a lot of experience. They have a lot of wisdom. They, they love to share it. They don't want a full-time job. And their favorite part of their job was to help people in their careers. And they have a lot to share. But they really don't have a platform to share it unless they get those individual phone calls. So it's a great untapped resource out there for people who want to grow their careers or want better business outcomes. All of these thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of executives from various industries. On the other side, when you think about companies and their challenges from a talent development, a leadership development standpoint, um, traditional models of doing that are resource intensive and they're expensive. We worked at large companies with a lot of resources. I did, and I know you did too. And even at those large companies with with all of those monies, money and those large HR and L&D staffs, 
it's like, hey, uh, budgets were kind of limited. You had to pick out a small group of people, maybe a high potential group that the executives arm wrestled to see if they could get their person in it. And then you had this group, you threw some resources at them, you sent them off to a one-week boot camp, you had a couple of brown bag lunches, and maybe you, you gave them an extra project to do, which they were thrilled about. And that was and that was for 20 people. So I was trying to think, is there a way to bring this resource that I talked about and scale it for companies so that they can have many more people participating and able to grow their careers? And that helps with turnover. It helps with engagement and those surveys that we're doing once or twice a year. It helps with productivity. And, and that's, so that's the platform and the service that we offer is meant to address those challenges. So what you really have done is you've gone out and you found really smart experts in their fields, cross-functionally, supply chain, finance, sales, operations, HR brought them really to create this network, the mentor force. And you've got on-demand, real-time learning videos that really share that wisdom, but with that really unique functional viewpoint. So it's not just generic leadership. It's really getting into some of the more specifics that could really help different people who are trying to become better at finance or better supply chain. It is a piece. I'll break it down just real quickly. We offer to customers what I call a three-tier turnkey mentoring program. And I would say what we've learned is it's especially valuable to companies of, you know, let's say less than a thousand employees that have kind of a bare bones HR staff that's working on hiring, firing, compliance, compensation, and performance management, doesn't have much time for anything else in terms of development. And we go in and we say, we'll do it for you. And the three tiers are number one, what you said, we call it mentor force university online on demand video based content. That's pragmatic and developed and delivered by these executives that you mentioned. The second tier though, starts to become more interactive. We have group mentoring sessions where we can bring in cohorts from the organization uh, of up to 25 people at a time. We bring in one of our executive mentors. We kind of focus a 60 to 90 minute conversation with those people on a particular topic related to career management or business outcomes or what have you. And they can ask questions and interact with that person in a safe space. And then the third tier, as you might imagine, is private mentoring. We can then match up these executives in our network with individuals at the organization you know, people that the company really wants to invest in, or maybe they have a particular need. And then they have someone, not just that studied business or got a degree in psychology and gives them a personality test, but they did their job at one point in their industry. And they can talk about successes and failures and how they can help. So I certainly don't mean to denigrate the other model. It's very effective too. It's just to say this is a different model. And we bundle those three tiers up and we offer it at a flat rate to these companies or organizations at a rate that is not break the bank. I think it's such a great idea because there's obviously untapped wisdom, these executives that may be at a different point in their life where they want to give back, but also the fact that you could have mentoring, real life conversations, because if you're inside a company, you're not really going to go call your head of supply chain 
or sales or operations or whatever function we're talking about and be like, hey, can I get mentoring from you? They say, I'm pretty yep. busy, right? Of course, they want to develop yep. their teams, but this is just another great option. And then I have seen some of the content you have is really pragmatic. It's really on point. And it's differentiated than what's in the market because of the experience people are bringing in. It's not generic leadership training. It's really more targeted, which I think is just it was yeah. awesome. So we're excited to see where that goes, Jay. I mean, we're glad you brought that to market, you know, because I think it's another another piece that uh, the puzzle around solving, developing leaders. Yep. Let me just say one other quick thing, JP, because it might yeah. be relevant to your audience. I mentioned, you know, these HR teams that are stretched thin, and that holds true for probably no matter the company size, but certainly for some of these smaller companies with small staffs. So the other piece of this promise is, hey, we'll do it for you. You know, this is not going to be a resource intensive. You're going to have to manage the group and set the sessions and keep up with who's doing it and who's not. We communicate with people, we keep the data, and we keep you apprised once a month or once a quarter or however you want them so that you can focus on what you need to focus on. That's the idea of it. Yeah, it's really smart because the reality is HR plays a lot of different roles today. And so it's nice to have a turnkey kind of solution and that kind of support. So I'm sure that that's really well received. The other piece I want to talk to you about, Jay, is that over the course of your career, and getting to know you, you've come to believe there's certain personal competencies that are really required to move to higher level leadership roles. And I'm guessing that even now, as you've done mentor force, you've become even more focused on what this looks like as you're thinking about people's development. But talk to us a little bit more about these competencies and how you view that impacting someone's ability to move to higher yeah. levels. I'm a big believer in this. And I have to be honest, first of all, it's possible that that I didn't make this up. It's possible that at some point 20 years ago, I plagiarized these four things. So if somebody out there has read a book and they're like, man, that sounds familiar. But to me, there's four things that no matter the role you're in as a leader, no matter the industry you're in or the company, these apply. The first one is communication. So I already mentioned that, but you have to be able to clearly communicate in all scenarios, in all mediums, whether it be email or one-on-ones or ops review meetings with 20 people or on a stage with 5,000 people. You have to be able to condense your message to be clear and crisp in what you need done in a way that people can understand at a third grade level. And what I remember is, you know, and I bet everybody can, can name these people, you know, the people at a meeting that start talking and they never stop. Or the people that write you the email that's like a manifesto and you delete it by the time you're two paragraphs in. Those are the things that you need to clean up from a communication standpoint. So that, that number one is important. Number two is what I call dealing with ambiguity. And think of this as the higher you get up in an organization, the less anyone, especially your boss or the leaders of the company, want to have to tell you what to do and how to do it. They just expect you to figure it out. But what we find many times is a lot of people need handholding. You give them an assignment or a project and it's, well, I mean, where do you think I should get started with that? Or should I go do this? Or should, I don't know. You know, you, you go figure it out. That's why I'm giving it to you. People need to be able to deal with that, internalize that, go figure it out for themselves. I would say, and on a continuum of what's really optimal is You'd want someone to come to you rather than me even having to assign you a project. I just want to give you a problem. 
hey, here's a problem I have. Can you go figure that out? And I just want you to be able to figure it out. And I'll go one step further. What I really want is for you to come to me one day and say, hey, Jay, we have a problem. Did you know about this? No, I didn't. Well, yeah, here it is. And here's what I'm already doing about it. That is the ultimate in dealing with ambiguity. It's like they're just self-guided. They know how to deal with issues. They don't need a lot of hand-holding. They get it done and they give you the results. I have tons of stories that I won't tell about people that struggle with that, but that's a skill that you have to figure out as an executive leader. The third is strategic acumen. We as executive leaders, we get paid to get results now, but we really get paid to make sure that the company is still getting results three or four or five years from now, that we're positioning the organization to be successful long-term. And I think sometimes people can fall into the trap of just focusing on the here and now. They don't see the forest for the trees, so to speak. And next thing you know, the industry's changed, the company's changed, their teams have changed, and their recipe of success that got them to where they are, got the company there, is different, and they have not adjusted to it. And that's kind of a cardinal sin for an executive leader. So that's the third one. And the last one, I hear this called different things. I call it command skills. You might hear it called like executive presence. This is the hardest one for people to understand or to even describe, but I can tell you the way it manifests itself. A lot of times, especially in a larger company, when it comes time for executive promotions, it's kind of a group decision to a degree. You find yourself in a room with other senior executives, maybe it's the CEO or whoever else, a few HR leaders, obviously, um, and you're kind of choosing, all right, who, who's going to be the VP or the senior VP? And inevitably, in those meetings, somebody goes, I don't know if I really see him or her as an executive. And you don't, they don't even explain what they mean by that, but people seem to know inherently. Everybody's like, yeah, you're right. And that's the number one way that I see people get shot down in the promotion process. Now, that sounds so vague. But what it means to me is you have to have the confidence and the communication and the wherewithal to get people to follow you when you need them to follow you. If that means banging on the table, then you bang on the table. If that means cajoling, then that, you know, then you cajole. If that means stepping up in front of the room to, to make it happen, you got to make it happen. Some people shy away from that. You know, that's just, they're not comfortable with that. And so all of those things, you know, are important. And, and JP, l- let me tell you a quick story about, and this might bring it home. This is the best way to describe command skills. One time when I was, I think I was a first line manager. I certainly was not an executive yet. I was in a big meeting with, with the president of the organization who I think was at least three levels ahead of me. I was kind of a hanger on the wall in this meeting. And in case somebody had a question, I was the person in the back row that maybe had the answer. And so I sat there, didn't say a lot in the meeting. The meeting ended. I started to walk out. And he said, uh, his name was John. And John said, hey, Jay, why don't you stick around? Now, keep in mind, this guy's way above me. I'm like, uh-oh. Like, I, you know, I didn't even say anything about me. Like, what happened? Like, why, why am I having to stick around? 
And so everybody filters out and I'm wondering what he wants to do. And he keeps his executive assistant in the room. And now it's just me, the executive assistant. He said, I want to get your opinion on a few people that we're thinking about promoting to executive. I just want to see what you think. Now, these people were probably a level above me at the time. Okay. So this was probably highly inappropriate. I'm going to guess. And it was like, it was like the movie Animal House for those of you know, that have seen that. It was like literally the executive assistant put the picture on the wall and, and he goes, okay, what do you think about Sally? I'd say, well, I, you know, I, I like Sally. I think she's really smart. I, I've had a good working relationship with her, uh, blah, blah, blah. And he go, okay, thank you. Move on to the next person. So I don't want to shoot anybody's career down and I don't know what to say. And so I'm just kind of giving him these platitudes for people. And we get to the last person, and I'm going to use the wrong name on this one. Uh, let's say it was Ron. He goes, what do you think about Ron? And I kind of said the same thing. Ron's a nice guy, you know? He seems to, people seem to like him, blah, blah, blah. He goes, Jay, stop. He said, you know what I, you know what I think of Ron? He said, I think Ron is the guy that got stuffed in his gym locker in middle school. And we can't have an executive in this company with that kind of persona and we cannot promote him to executive. Now, I don't know what to say, you know, and I'm like, well, I thank you. Thank you, John. Do you need anything else from me? Nope. That'll be all. So I walked out wondering what in the hell just happened. I still, to this day, don't know why he selected me. I don't know if there was a subliminal message there for me. But I can tell you that was a big lesson in executive presence or command skills and probably the best way I could explain it. So let me, let me stop there. I could keep going. Well, I think what you did there, Jay, is you gave us a good view of to what it's like to work with CEOs that they're going to tell you their real opinion. It may be unfiltered. It may not be appropriate <laughs> or what we'd like to normally hear, but that is how yep. they can talk. And the other thing I think you nailed on command skills is it is about followership. It's about having confidence in that person. And when someone gets promoted to a higher and higher level, someone is making a bet and their career is tied to that person, to his point. I picked the wrong person and put that wrong person in that job. I'm going to look bad. It's almost even sometimes less about that person. It's more about who's making yeah. the pick and making sure that person can perform. But I love the way you kind of thought about those four things. And you know, executive presence is something that people have tried to measure. It's difficult. I'm not going to try to figure out and solve that problem here. There are books on this. You know, Wanda Wallace, who's actually a past guest, has a lot of great stuff around this. But I think the communication skills, sculpting fog, dealing with ambiguity, being strategic and seeing the forest through the trees and having that big picture view and not being myopic. If you do all those things well and people want to work with you and follow you, I think, yeah, you'll go far. Yeah. Enough, and I right? think, I believe if you gave me someone that was above average to exceptional in all four of those areas. I could put them in any function, any job, any company, any industry, any level, and they would be successful. And I think sometimes when we're hiring or looking, we get so caught up in, well, is that, does that person really know our industry? You know, has that person done this job? Does that person have the technical skills to understand the product if it's a technology, you know, type of thing? Uh, overrated, in my opinion. I'm not saying that you don't want someone to experience, 
But that is not going to be the deciding factor as to whether or not they're successful in a leadership role, in my opinion and experience. I want to turn the lens to HR a little bit. And from a senior leader's perspective, can you walk us through what you expect from the HR function and specifically maybe that HR leader that's supporting you and thinking back to your experience at Lenovo and Dell, what do you expect from us? Yeah, the number one thing that I wanted and expected and usually got was a close relationship, even more so than my relationship with my CFO or my head marketing person or my head salesperson. You really want your HR leader to be your confidant, not only on HR issues, by the way. And so whenever I had that, I felt like I had a good HR person. And I'll try to give you a little bit more specifics in terms of what makes up the relationship in my mind. And I keep going back to this theme, I guess. Transparency is one. Like, I don't want to feel like someone has an agenda or they're kind of hiding something from me or they're scared of me and they don't want to tell me the truth. Like, I just want them to tell me the truth, what they think. I can choose to believe it or agree with it or not. I want them to challenge my thinking and I want there to be give and take. I want to listen to them, but they need to be tough enough and open-minded enough to also hear what I think and not always kind of take what I'll maybe call the HR party line, if that makes sense. Let's have a real conversation about what works, what doesn't work, what we could do, what we couldn't do, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. And then we'll decide together. That's what I want that relationship to look like. And I guess the last thing I'll say is I also want them to be a business person. And I have had HR people that, man, they knew the process in and out. They were great at the compensation management process. They always kept me on time. You know, they made sure that we had our reviews. Everybody had their reviews done and all that kind of stuff. And that's nice. That kind of kept me out of HR jail. But what I really want is a business person that understands the strategy, that understands what the salesperson is doing and what the marketing person is doing and has opinions on it so that we can kind of talk through it in that relationship-oriented way that I, that I kind of referred to. Well, I'm glad that people are keeping you out <laughs> of HR jail. I'm about to use that one. <laughs> well, I'd love to hear that. I think that's really helpful for, for the listeners and next-generation HR leaders to hear what really matters. And let me say one other thing, JP, about that, that that may help the folks that are listening, you know, again, from my perspective, I believe as an HR person that it needs to be clear that you're helping that executive achieve their goals. In other words, your job is not to protect the HR kingdom and sanctity. Your job is to help that leader achieve business goals. Now you have to do that in ethical ways and ways that meet with company policy and ways that make sense for the people in the organization, all of that stuff. I don't mean to say follow blindly and do dumb things that some executive wants to do, but it needs to be clear that your real purpose is to help them achieve their business goals. And I say that because I've only recently come to understand this from this perspective. I haven't thought about it this way. That business executive Oftentimes, their head's on the chopping block, so to speak. You know, 
they got to get results. And if they don't get results, whatever that might be, whatever their function they're running, they're not going to be there very long. And so they're under a lot of pressure and need someone that they feel like is quote unquote on their team. That's really helping them get there in an open-minded way while keeping them, you know, on the right tracks. Because if you think about it, that HR person, in my experience, they'll be there for multiple executives. You know, most of the time executives roll in and out and it's the same HR leader a lot of times. You know, so it's, you just, I would understand that, hey, it's probably their head on the chopping block. If I can figure out how to help them be successful, then I'm going to have that relationship with them that I'm looking for and they're looking for. And as a result, my career will grow. Yeah, I think that's the key point is that you want an HR leader that feels tied to that business leader and that the results that business leader achieves, the business achieves with them are the same, right? The goal should be the same. That alignment's got to be right. there. Jay, la- Jay, last question for you. This might be a little out of your comfort zone, but it's my last question. I always ask it, so I have to ask it to you. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I'm not sure that I am an expert, obviously, but I would have to say flexibility. This is an overused kind of, you know, idea, but things are changing more rapidly every single day, Um, just an acceleration of the pace of change. And so the things that worked a year ago or two years ago are probably not going to work. Just look at what's going on right now. You got obviously remote working that we didn't have to think a lot about as of five years ago, it was kind of a nice to have, not a necessary to have. That's changed the dynamic of leadership in an organization. You got these ideas of quiet quitting and you got new methods of development. You got a workforce that is super eager and ambitious and capable, but also impatient. So looking at the different ways to keep the organization healthy and learning and growing in a way that helps the business succeed. I think flexibility is the name of the game, man. Um, If you insist on the same old, same old, then I think you're going to be left by the wayside pretty quickly. I love it. Flexibility for HR in the future. Jay Parker, MentorForce. We're excited about hearing about the company. We're excited to see the success of MentorForce. I hope people will look it up, learn more about what you guys are doing. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, JP. Enjoyed it. Appreciate you having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Jay for sharing his perspective on what makes leaders successful and what business leaders want from their HR business partners. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. This really helps us go a long way to grow the podcast and supports our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with David Cohen. David's a partner at Kelso & Company, which is a North American-focused middle market private equity firm that has been successfully investing in companies for over 40 years. In David's role, he's focused on applying talent and human capital best practices to enhance the firm's investment processes, portfolio companies, and Kelso's specialist network. In my conversation with David, we'll discuss the world of private equity, how human capital creates value, and what makes an effective HR leader in a PE-backed company. If you ever want to learn more about private equity, 
You don't want to miss this episode. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.